We're in a series on the book of Hebrews, and so that means that we're going to talk about endurance again uh, as we open this uh, scripture up again tonight. And uh, particularly, we're going to talk about hardship and the reality that hardship and struggle is probably the single biggest reason that we don't endure. Those are the things that get us slowing down and falling off the track. So that's what we're going to talk about in general uh, tonight as we open up Hebrews chapter 12 which is on the heels of Hebrews 11, which Chris preached about last week and we looked at last week. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And then we got these examples throughout that chapter of these men and women who had lived their life by faith, straining for the things that that were promised, not receiving them in the present, but pressing forward, enduring all kinds of hardship. Some of them we read even being sawn in two, believing that they had a better hope, a better resurrection, something to look forward to. We're going to deal with hardship. Before we do so, I want to look at the first two verses of Hebrews 12, which are, in a way, the flagship passage of this entire letter, or write a sermon. Um, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race marked that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is such a great exhortation. Briefly, what he's saying is after this catalog of people who have gone before you that I want you to emulate, now I want you to run that same race with endurance. And he says, as you do so in these first two verses, be inspired. There is a great cloud of witnesses that surrounds you with their battle wounds and scars, having entered into their rest. And I want you to see them and be encouraged by all those who have gone before and and be inspired by their example and run. Be free. Sin. The weight. Those things that cling to us and hold us back from running this race. He says, "Let, let go of those things. Lay aside those things so that you can run freely. And then run with endurance the race. And it's important to note that the race isn't the race that you or I choose. This is a big theme in the Christian life, but we don't choose the race. God puts this race as the sovereign, providential creator who is over all things and circumstances. God is the one who sets your course for you. And what the writer is saying is, I want you to run the race with endurance, but it's the race that God has set before you, not the race that you choose for yourself. So run that race with endurance. And then in verse 2, he says, be focused. This is the theme of our entire series, which is called Hebrews, Look to Jesus. And that's where we get it from, verse 2, looking to Jesus. Be focused on Jesus as you're running the race with endurance. Be focused on him. Now, why? Why does he say look to Jesus? There are a lot of reasons that we look to Jesus, and I hope to come back to that at the end. But the reason that he gives us in this text in particular is because Jesus is the best example of one who has run with endurance through hardship and struggle. And that's what he points to. That Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and then sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, entered into his glory. So Jesus, this new human being, the one who became human, and lived this life perfectly, endured every temptation and suffering and trial that we will endure. He endured these things and entered into his glory. So I want you to look to him. Look to him as an example. And that's reinforced in verse 3. 
I'm using the text, so if you have a Bible or on your phone, open up to Hebrews 12, where he says in verse 3, Consider him, that is Jesus, who what? Who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Look at him, consider him, deliberately reason and think about his life because he's the one who endured tremendous hostility from sinners, those who were running away from God against himself. And he says to do this, why? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That's not a very comforting verse, by the way, is it? I mean, this is a group of people who we read at the end of chapter 10. They had accepted joyfully the plundering of their possessions. So they're already a step or two beyond where you and I have been, probably. I don't know all of you here. And what he's saying is, you haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Who did resist to the point of shedding his blood? Jesus. And so it's as if he's saying, you've got more room to grow in your resistance and struggle against sin. So look to Jesus. Hardship, struggle, that's the context. And we all know that. That's the context of our lives. It's impossible to live in the world and not know hardship and struggle. So here's what we want to do tonight. What do we mean when we say struggles and hardship, first? Second, how are we to view these struggles and hardships? And what is the alternative? And then third, how are we strengthened by looking to Jesus for endurance in the midst of struggles? So first, what do we mean by struggles and hardships? In the general sense, first, we mean the chafing that occurs between God's kingdom and the cultures of this world, which are under the power of sin. In other words, citizens of God's kingdom pursue the kingdom way of life, a life of holiness, which is conformity to God or to Jesus and nonconformity to the world around us. This nonconformity will result inevitably in a kind of abrasiveness with the world in which we live. It just will. If you take just thinking about the idea that we're to pursue generosity, that's an aspect of God's character and holiness that we're to embody in our lives, that chafes against the way in which we're told to treat and, 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 and uh, deal with our resources according to the materialistic world in which we live. We're to honor God with our bodies, to pursue this holiness in our sexual ethic, the way we deal with sexuality, that puts us at odds with the way in which our culture talks about sexuality. And there's challenge and struggle in that. And so the first way to think about struggles and hardships is that these are the general results of what it means to live the kingdom life in a world and a culture that's not in line with that kingdom. It's always harder to swim upstream than it is to go with the current. And there will be hardship that results from that in our lives. But three more particular ways to think about hardship that I want to mention. First is temptations to sin. The allure of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Constantly beckoning us to exchange the life of God for a life that seems much more immediately gratifying and accessible and controllable. We are constantly beset by temptation. Temptation to move out of the clear and life-giving word of God, that's what happened in the Garden of Eden long ago, and to embrace a different word, maybe a word of our own making. And we fight this day in and day out. Did God really say? 
So there are temptations to sin. There's persecution. Unfair and unjust treatment of those who follow Jesus because of their faith. Of course, when we look at the example that the author gives us of Jesus' hardship, it's the cross. And the cross is the best example of persecution, of one who is suffering unjustly because of his identification with the God of heaven and earth. And that experience is not unique to Jesus. Of course, the cross is unique and non-repeatable, but that kind of persecution is happening all over the world today in cultures and countries where to know or to claim Christ is to immediately be excluded from one's family and the, the, the places of importance in society. But it's even becoming more so possible here. I, and certain of you, some of you are in academic contexts where to identify with Jesus is to at least endure a kind of ridicule, maybe whispering behind your back, and perhaps some limitation of opportunities because of those commitments. And it's more and more becoming the case in our culture today. And thirdly, there's personal disabilities or hardships. And I would describe these in a general sense of the common condition of humanity in a fallen and broken world. Cancer. Missed opportunities. Broken relationships. Failed dreams. Anything that's included in the world in which we live that's awaiting redemption. The suffering and hardship that's common to all of us. So, I don't know what it is in your life, which one of these three, or perhaps that just general over the general chafing between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world, but all of us at one level or another are dealing with hardships. So how are we to view those, secondly? And this is verses 5 through 11 of our text. This is actually the new data in the book of Hebrews that comes here. Where he says, and you have, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And then he quotes Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, which we read from in our Old Testament reading. And he introduces the idea of God as a father disciplining his children out of love for them in order to produce a kind of fruit in their lives. That is at least one lens, and a good one, through which we can view our struggles and our hardships. That these are allowed by God in our lives for our good. Look at verse 10. He he uses an analogy with earthly fathers and says they discipline their sons for a short time as it seemed best to them. But then he says, but he, that is God, disciplines us for our good. Why? That we may share in his holiness. What is our good? That we might become like God. That we might share in his very life. That we might be restored to the image bearers that we were created to be. That sin has mucked up. That's his goal. So here's the bulletin, the, the, the breaking news, that God's primary interest is not in our having a life of ease and comfort, though that may be what we so deeply want. God's primary purpose and interest in your life and in mine is to see us grow to become like his son Jesus, to share in his holiness. And so what the writer of Hebrews is teaching us is he's saying that God will use the means of struggle and heart in your life as a loving father to produce those better ends 
that he's seeking in your life. He wants you to become like him. He wants you to share in his nature and being. And so he will use the means of discipline to bring that about. Now, to be clear, by discipline we don't mean punishment. As if to say that the only reason you're suffering and enduring hardship in your life is because you have sinned and are being punished by God. Now, it is clear that in the New Testament, God does, at times, act in a way that punishes sin. We think, of course, of the kind of bone-shaking reality of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, but also in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul says you're eating the, the Lord's Supper in the wrong way, and so some of you have died and some of you are sick. So, as, as hard as we think that is, we don't want to silence the biblical word on that and say that God doesn't work in that way. But discipline is a broader concept that implies training and instruction to, give, to, to lead you to live a certain way of life. And that's the Father's desire for us, is to lead us into the life of holiness, to be like him. And so discipline in this case means all, that that, all that's in around God's, God, all that God uses to bring about that end. And he uses these struggles and hardships to make us become like him. So he allows us then to walk through these things that are undesirable and difficult. Things that in the present, and that's what verse 11 says, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So things that in the present we would never desire for our lives, and we would never wish upon someone else, those very things can be the means by which God works his greater purposes in us. Not because he doesn't care about us, but actually because he loves us as a father and wants to see us grow. That painfulness in the present, that discomfort in the present, that thing that, whatever it was that came to mind as we talked earlier about those different ways of thinking about hardship and struggle, whatever that is, God actually wants to work through that in your life to produce the fruit of righteousness, as verse 11 speaks of it. And the writer says, if we come under the training that God wants to bring us through these, these situations, if we walk through the training by faith, understanding God's purposes in it and not wavering in our conviction that he is present with us, he is good to us, he loves us, and he's working out his sovereign purposes in our lives. As Romans 8.28 says, for all things work together for the good of those who love him. Then this will produce fruit in us that far surpasses the discomfort of the present. That's worth far more. And then if we think about it for a moment, the, the writer of Hebrews has actually taught us this already through Jesus, who he tells us to look at throughout this sermon. In, in chapter 2, verse 10, he says that it, it was Jesus' suffering, it was through his suffering, that Jesus was made perfect. That is, a holy fitting sacrifice and redeemer, substitute. We've talked earlier that he wasn't imperfect in a sense of moral imperfection before, but that it was through the suffering that God took him through that Jesus was made a holy, fitting sacrifice. Or in chapter 5, he says that Jesus the Son learned obedience through what he suffered. That this suffering actually was the means by which Jesus' perfect obedience to the Father was made manifest, even says it was learned, it was, it was kind of lived into through the act of suffering. The trial of the cross, which... Hebrews 12 says Jesus endured from sinners, was used by the Father for good purposes in the Son's own life. 
And my point is simple, that if that was true for the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, who took on human flesh to redeem us from sin, then how much more might it be true of you and of me? And that's the testimony of all of Scripture. 1 Peter 1, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Through these trials that have grieved you, your faith is being refined to the praise and glory, to praise and glory and honor when the day when Jesus comes back. Or in James 1, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God's desire for you. Later in that same chapter, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let me say a couple things to be clear. This doesn't mean this teaching of the Bible, which is here in Hebrews as well, that we deny the reality or the pain of hardship. We are to be human. The Psalms encourage our humanity, which means that when we are suffering, when we are enduring hardship of some kind, it is right and good for us to protest those things before the God whose purposes have been declared unambiguously in the resurrection for life and for our good. That's a right response. That's a holy response to those things in our lives. And we never, never glibly say to brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering, who have some kind of hardship upon them, oh, this is clearly just God's purposes in your life to bring about something good. I know we try to say, we, we try to stump, but better to be silent than to say that to somebody in the midst of their pain. It may be true, it's the wrong thing to say. But the writer of Hebrews is encouraging us to see the providential fatherly hand of God in the midst of these hardships. Do you see them? Do you see his hand in this way in your own life? There's an alternative, and we see the alternative in verse 15. There are two paths, in a sense. You're going to have hardship, but there are two ways to respond to this. One that we've just articulated, and that the author of Hebrews is encouraging. See them as the hand of God, working in your life for something even better. But the alternative he mentions in verse 15. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness, quoting Deuteronomy 29, springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. What he's saying is that there's this one response of faith to these trials, but there's another response that allows the trials to begin to make you bitter. And you and I know, we know what this is like. We do. Think about that one thing, or that those two things that are constantly a part of your experience that you wish weren't there, and how that one thing can start to lead you down a path where you say, God, I don't think you're here. God, I don't think you care. God, you may not be powerful enough to deal with this. And eventually, that begins to take root in the heart and leads to a kind of abdication of our faith, a, a, a walking away, a hardening. We know that can happen. And he's saying, that's one response. In fact, the disciples in the boat in Mark 4 have that response. Do you remember when they're in, they're in a boat and the storm comes up and Jesus is in the boat and they run up to him and they say, Master, what do they say? Do you remember? 
do you not care that we are perishing? That's a good picture to think about how in your own life, when things aren't the way you want them to be, it's so easy to go down that path. So how are we handling our struggles? Are we growing weary or faint-hearted in them? Or can we see them through the lens of faith? That our Father who loves us longs to give us more of himself and has chosen in his mysterious and providential hand to allow us to walk through hardships in order that that might become more and more of a reality, a greater good that we long for. The writer of Hebrews is saying, this is essential for the way of endurance. It's essential that we see our hardships in this way. Finally and briefly, how are we strengthened by looking at Jesus? And we do wrestle with this. Obviously, we wrestle with this. There are ambiguities that abound in in, in wrestling with our hardships. But what does Jesus show us when we look to Jesus? And that's where we're encouraged and exhorted to look. There's just a a quick thing I want to point out in verse 2. He says about Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. What we see in Jesus is the kind of key feature of faith, according to the writer of Hebrews, which is that Jesus saw beyond his present circumstances. He saw to what was ahead of him. And he says, for the joy that was set before him, he saw the great work of redemption that God the Father was asking him to participate in by being engaged in this kind of hardship. And he rejoiced in that in such a way that By looking ahead, by seeing ahead, he was able to despise the shame of the cross. The word despise is interesting. It actually means that he looked upon it as of little value, as of a kind of nothing, a nuisance. But remember what the cross was. This was Jesus, humiliated, betrayed, spat on, ridiculed, denied by those who loved him. This was Jesus hanging naked on a cross, helpless, unable to do anything at least humanly speaking, hanging there uh, helpless, hanging there shamefully, being dehumanized. This was the worst way to die that has ever been invented in the history of humanity. It was meant to dehumanize its victims. And what does it say? Despising the shame. In light of what Jesus saw in front of him, in light of the hope and the glory and the goodness that he saw that he was going through this for, it means that Jesus was able to look at the trial that he was in and see it for how small it really was in comparison with the greatness and the goodness and the treasure of the God he was obeying in the midst of that trial and what would come about as a result of that obedience. Which means, as we think about in our own lives, whatever it is, and some of us have gone through life-altering hardship which I do not for a moment want to trivialize or minimize. And the struggles of those things are real. But I want to say to every one of us that whatever it is that we are going through or have gone through or will go through, that relative to the good of God our Father and the the inheritance that we have and the reward that we will receive on the end of this journey, that whatever it is that we're going through is like a small pebble in comparison with this overwhelming treasure that we've been given in Christ. That is ours because we are united to Christ by faith. We are with Him in heavenly places and He is interceding for us at the Father's right hand. 
cheering us on. He is at the head of the great cloud of witnesses, rooting us forward. And that's our great hope and joy and reward. And faith looks forward to that and says, to whatever it is that I'm going through in the present, however long and drip, drip, drip it might be in my life, that that is nothing in comparison. I can despise it. I can count it of little value relative to this great good that I've been given, that is guaranteed, that is mine. That's what Jesus did. And that's what we are called to do in his footsteps. Not, and I finish here, not in our own strength, but in the strength that he provides, in the power that he gives, in the love that he loves us with. These temptations, these hardships are too much for us. We all know that. But Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet did not sin. Jesus conquered, Jesus overcame, and Jesus is now giving us his spirit, his strength, and his love to enable us to live the life of endurance under our Father's loving discipline and care for us. That we might become more like him in the present, and that we might enter into glory with him in the future. Amen.